0: Well, I've already kind of spilled the surprise. I mean, it's not hard to see. Uh, Today we're celebrating. Today we are celebrating the Reformation. The Reformation, as we mentioned earlier, occurred on October, the the birthday, the, the, the anniversary of the Reformation is October 31st because on that day in the year 1517, Martin Luther had finally had enough and he finally was, was so incensed in his spirit that he went down the few blocks from his home and he nailed on the doors of the castle church of Wittenberg his 95 theses. And that, of course, ignited a firestorm that resulted in what we know as the Reformation. So October 31st is a big day historically. And in that Reformation movement, we have the recovery of a host of biblical doctrines. Probably most substantially is we recovered the Bible as our source of authority. None of the other doctrines of the Reformation, even the gospel, would have been identified or recovered had it not been for an a priori commitment to the Bible as our source of authority. Even before Martin Luther, though, there had been forerunners, precursors, if you will. A few hundred years ago, John Wycliffe, an English priest, had translated the Bible and gotten himself killed for it. John Huss, in the year 1415, a hundred and two years before Martin Luther, as he had identified the corruption of the church at that time, and as he had become a staunch supporter of the notion that the Bible is our authority, and it is the Bible that drives biblical Christianity. It is from the Bible that we gather our understanding of how men and women are to relate rightly with God. Well... He met his end at a stake. And you may know he prophetically uttered in a, in a play on words, he said, you are about to roast an old goose. And goose is a play on his last name, Hus. He's from a region that was known for being goose, whatever. So you're about to roast an old goose. And in a hundred years, a swan shall rise from these asses that you shall not be able to stop. And of course he His prediction was off by two years. Not bad in the grand scheme of things, but he was off by two years. And Martin Luther posted his 95 theses 102 years after Huss was killed. Now, it's great and wonderful for us to remember that the Reformation happened. But what we sometimes forget is just how dark the world had seemed for so long. For over a thousand years, Europe had languished in darkness. Rome had been sacked by Alaric in 410 A.D. And after about a year of pillaging and plundering, he had left and Rome limped along for about 60 years. 60 years of denying that they were dead 60 years of continuing to have games and public spectacles to try to tell themselves everything was okay. Until in 467 the last Roman emperor was deposed by the barbarians. At that time the light went out in the west and for the next several hundred years it was non-stop fighting. If you've ever looked at life in the early dark ages it was horrible. Life expectancy was low. I mean, it was bad. And in that context, the church sought to be some sort of mediating influence between all these pagan nations and and people groups. They tried to maintain some semblance of normalcy. But what happened as they did this is the church began to look like a political entity. And over centuries, it took powers and prerogatives and eventually took a place in society that they were the kingmakers of the day. And indeed, by the time of Pope Innocent III, they were so high up that they could, in fact, depose a king. And so from about the year 1000 to 1500, Europe was literally in the stranglehold Of the Roman Catholic Magisterium. It was dark. Superstition abounded. Biblical faith was hard to find. Things seemed so bleak. Non-stop incursions by the Muslim armies from the West and the East. What on earth? What happened to this glorious kingdom that Christ talked about? What happened? Fast forward 2,000 years, 500 years from that point, whatever, and here we are on the precipice of a national election. And many of us are very distraught at how in the last several decades, our culture has almost seemingly come to the verge of collapse. Western culture as we know it historically is is all but dead in Europe. And we can see it happening here. And from left and right, we see the church seeming to be encroached on all sides. And what happened? We feel like we are on the verge of another dark age. And so we can feel very much perplexed about the state of affairs. Now, in the Reformers' day, the Reformers were deeply animated by the truth of these Proverbs here. You see, there was a Latin phrase that was based upon the Latin translation of of a passage in Job, but it says, post tenebras lux. Some of you may have heard this phrase. It became a sort of rallying cry motto for those in the Reformation era. After darkness, light. The darkness does not and indeed cannot last forever. And as we learned in the third verse of A Mighty Fortress, he has willed that we will win. Satan's powers, all the forces of this world, they literally cannot prevail. They may kill you and me, this body, they may kill, but what does the song say? His truth abideth still. The church of Jesus Christ is undefeatable. And so, My hope and my prayer for you is that as we live in our day, we will avoid unnecessary uh, discombobulation as we face the waves that this age has for us. In this passage here, Jesus gives three uh, parables that describe the kingdom. Now, one of the troubling parables one of the trouble points we can get into is if we look at these as concrete examples where we can say, you know, we're at some point between the planting of the seed and the harvest, so we must be right here. That's not the point of these parables. The point is that from the vantage point of when it started to by the time it comes around, we'll see these remarkable things. Now, what are they? Well, the three parables that he tells us, gives us three insights into the nature of the kingdom of God. The first is that the kingdom is inextinguishable. Inextinguishable. Jesus asks the question, is a lamp brought just to be hidden? When you put a lamp up, does it go underneath a bush, a a, a basket, a table, a bed? No. No. It's meant to shine. Now, of course, John 8, 12 tells us that who is the light of the world? Jesus. Jesus, I am the light of the world. Okay, the light has come. It has. But did you know that because we are in Him and we are His body, that according to Matthew 5.43, guess who also is the light of the world? We are. We are the light of the world. Now, Jesus and the potency of this parable is found in the fact that, well, if we're the light of the world, then why don't we see it just shining bright? Why does it look like things are hidden? Well, Because for the time being, in this age, there are forces in every age that will try to dim or smother that light if it can. But nothing that is hidden now will remain that way. What is hidden will be disclosed, will be revealed. So, despite a thousand years of official church decisions and proclamations and actions that were all aimed at the accumulation and centralization of power. Despite that, despite the fact that they started inquisitions and inquiries and councils aimed at the smothering of the biblical gospel, nonetheless, even though it looked like that light was about to go out completely. Nonetheless, it couldn't. And in fact, in the Reformation, the attempt to put a basket over the light was pulled back, and you could see more of the light shining. Likewise, in our own day, there are forces that seek to smother the light Now, it's not so much about the centralization and accumulation of power, but our church culture indeed is in the death stranglehold of autonomy. For everybody, it's my opinion counts. It's my opinion that matters. And I only listen to the people who agree with me. And because of that, if you listen to a lot of things, it's about feelings. I feel this means this. I feel it means that. Who cares what the facts are? I feel this. I feel that. It sure feels mean to denounce this particular lifestyle or activity. So, you know, we have to then re-figure everything out because what I feel is true. Feelings are true. That's what we're told. And because of that, the church is suffering in many quarters. The message that should be profoundly earth-shattering and life-changing has kind of been aped and twisted in many respects, so it's just a health, health, self-help improvement type of message. This week, I was reading and I came upon uh, a passage from J.I. Packer's 1958 book entitled Fundamentalism and the Word of God. And he writes this Our business is to present the Christian faith clothed in modern terms, not to propagate modern thought clothed in Christian terms. Our business is to interpret and criticize modern thought by the gospel, not vice versa. Confusion here is fatal. If you think back to the Middle Ages, no one in that early establishment of the Roman church thought that they were undermining the gospel. As they were evangelizing and sending missionaries out to these pagan tribes, they figured the best way to win over the peoples was to incorporate as many of their things as possible. And so over centuries, the Roman church became highly syncretistic. And eventually, the message of the gospel got watered down to the point that Jesus, who is the mediator between God and man, his likeness and image became distorted so that he was someone with whom we needed a mediator. So we needed a mediator to get to the mediator between God and man. And that shift happened subtly. And it didn't start out because of ill intentions but it became a bad thing. Likewise, in our day, we are so worried about being relevant that we've accepted and even redone our language to sound accommodating to the culture. But in the process, have we undermined subtly the distinctiveness of the message that we are preaching? Remember sometimes the way to be relevant is to stand out as seemingly irrelevant. And sometimes the process of seeking to be relevant ultimately trivializes one. So, Jesus is here saying, look, throughout the kingdom's age, on this earth, there are going to be times when it's going to look like the light has gone out. There are going to be times when the light seems to shine bright, but it will never be extinguished. It won't. So be encouraged as you look at the fact that approximately 3,500 churches a year close. And as you look at the fact that it seems like religious liberties are being threatened. In fact, the, the religious freedom... That we have, it's, if you talk to millennials, they've done, they couldn't care less about religious liberty. Which is absolutely essential to a free people. And it's easy to get discouraged, but don't. Because the light will not be extinguished. On the other hand, even if you were to be living in the midst of the glory of the Reformation, of the, uh Reformation. Even if you were to be living, I don't know, in the glories of the 50s, where where it's probably the golden age of American greatness. It doesn't matter how bright that light seems to be shining. As as long as we are living in this age, we are not beholding the unbridled beauty and glory of that kingdom majesty. So keep even-keeled. The bads are not as bad as they seem, And the goods are not as awesome as they seem. In this life, there will be periods of seeming darkness and periods of seeming lightness. So take heart. The bottom line is, is we will be victorious, despite how dark or bright it seems in any particular moment. The second parable that he tells, tells us that the kingdom is inexplicable and its growth. Inexplicable. He tells the story of of a farmer who plants a seed in the ground. And now, from our historical vantage point, we have the scientific knowledge to explain germination. Okay, and I'm not saying that no one in that era understood germination, but from the vantage point of your average peasant, illiterate farmer of that era, they put a seed in the ground and and they, it wasn't magic, but they could not explain the process by which it brought forth a plant. And so they would put the plant in the ground and day and night they wait, and then one day it grows. Now in the parable of the sower, a few verses earlier, the thrust of Jesus' message is that we have to have responsive and receptive hearts. Now in this particular parable, The emphasis is on the innate power of the word. The innate power of that seed to grow, despite the fact that the sower doesn't really know what's going on. Now, I think this is an incredible truth that we get from the Reformation. In the Reformation, they were so convinced that the word of God was essential that their main objective was simply to unleash the word. So virtually all the Reformers, they set up colleges, they set up schools, they they preached, they taught, they wrote, and, and it was all exposition. Explain the Bible. Get the Bible out there. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. The Bible is the mean, is the seed. The Word of God is that seed. And we can't explain how it works in people's lives, Though many business analysts have tried to quantify and codify how church growth works and how the spiritual life works, it kind of defies logic. It kind of defies description. All we know is, is our job is to put the seed out there and it grows. The Holy Spirit works. And so the call for us very much understood by the reformers is stop doing and inventing things thinking that we're going to help God out. Preach the word everywhere to as many people get the word out there and then get out of the way and let God do his thing. Because despite the fact that Now, if if you're like Tommy and Rachel or some other, you know, plant-loving people, you know, you have that sense of patience, so you can wait. Some of us, we plant, and it's like, all right, you know, 24 hours later, we're talking to the dirt, grow! It happens on its own timeline, right? You know how a a watch pot never boils? Well, it seems like it never is going to grow. You can't actually see it growing. You just come out one day, and oh, it's grown, have patience with not only the work of God in your life, because sometimes you can't perceive it immediately. The societal movements that had happened by the time John Huss came around to even make John Huss a possibility, they weren't ready yet. It took 102 years for Luther to come on the scene. And even then, it was like four years before the church even took him seriously. Seriously. At first, they thought he was just a drunk German who would come to his senses once he sobered up. Four years before they took him seriously. It takes time. So have patience. I understand that some of you may have loved ones, children perhaps, who have grown and seemingly departed the faith. Have patience. Sow the seed. You may not get an immediate response. It may seem like there's nothing growing. Just... Sow the seed, sow the seed, and let God do his thing, okay? Have patience, because it's inexplicable. It may seem like nothing is happening, but it is, okay? So, the light is inextinguishable, the kingdom's growth is inexplicable, and what's more, the kingdom is itself incredible, in this parable of the mustard seed. You know, I'm sure that you've heard this verse brought up by the Bible deniers as, you know, this is an example of where, of where the Bible contains error. Oh yes, because Jesus says uh, it's like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Uh, Point of fact, it's not the smallest seed on the earth. Uh, you got You 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 stumped Jesus. <laughs> okay, this is the kind of problem you get in when you try to, you know, outpoint Dexterize, you know, the Bible. First of all, remember, we're talking colloquially, not scientifically, matter-of-factly. When Jesus says this, Just like in almost every place where the Bible talks about the world, like Caesar Augustus took a census of the entire world, well, did he sail across and take a census of the Indians? No, it's almost always regionalized, okay? So what Jesus is saying is, look, of all the seeds of which we're associated with, again, to the average little peasant farmer, his plot of land basically may as well be the whole world. I mean, that's how big their world was, it it, And so the smallest seed of which they would have had any cognizance would have been that mustard seed. Okay? So Jesus is using an analogy from real life and real experience. He's not writing, you know, History of Science 101 textbook here. So Jesus isn't wrong. It is, in fact, the smallest seed of their experience. And have you ever seen a mustard seed? It's really small. I wanted to say it was like a fifth of the size of a peppercorn, <laughs> but unless you've seen a peppercorn, it's, it's approximately eh, a half to one millimeter in diameter. I mean, it's a small little seed. A small little seed. It's something that you could easily drop and lose because <coughs> it's so small. And the point is that Here is something that is so ridiculously small. It's it's a third of the size of the average grain of sand. Okay? It's really small. And yet, from that little, little, little seed, you get this amazingly full, lush bush, and a mustard plant grows like 10 feet tall, and it's big, and it's full. And he's not saying that the bush is the biggest thing you've ever seen, but it's, a really, it's bigger than any of the other vegetable plants they have, and it comes from something that's a third of the size of a grain of sand. It's the contrast between the starting point and the ending point, that from such a small, insignificant thing, you would never expect something so big and full and life-sustaining, that birds are able to come and build nests in it. And so this little got this little little seed represents the kingdom. And that it right now it seems so insignificant. What I like is the fact that Jesus kept it at this local humble metaphor. He talks about a mustard plant. Okay, well it's a big thing, but he didn't talk about these mighty sequoias, he didn't talk about mighty cedars of Lebanon. He kept it very small. So that quite frankly From the vantage point of a human kingdom and a worldly perspective, even in its glorious state, it still seems rather humble to that perspective. But from something so small, from a ragtag band of 12 followers, malcontents, misfits, this kingdom is going to spread and it's going to grow. And it's going to be life-giving and life-sustaining. It's interesting that the Roman Empire, which sought to destroy the kingdom, eventually itself had to take shelter in the kingdom. The kingdom grows incredibly. The difference between its starting point and where it's going is incredible. So right now, you may think that the church looks pretty pitiful. A pretty pitiful state of affairs. It may seem like we are losing ground on every front. But just you wait. You will never believe how big and how glorious the kingdom gets in comparison to its starting point. So, how about you? Where are you at? You are part of the kingdom, you know that? He's not just talking about institutions and bodies of believers. He's talking about individual believers who make up a kingdom. Where are you at? Is the light seemingly dim in your own life? Are you, have you grown impatient, waiting for a sign of progress and growth? Are you disappointed in the state of affairs because you would have guessed and assumed that by now you would have something glorious and great. Have patience. Keep on keeping on. Keep plugging away. Persevere. Because the light is inextinguishable. The growth is, I mean, the, the growth is inexplicable. And the future result is incredible. We're about to move into a new building. And a new chapter in the history of Grace Covenant Church is going to begin. And it's my hope and it's my prayer that each of you, as you go into this new building, will have a new chapter in your life where it's marked by a confidence and an even-keeledness that comes from knowing that what we see right now is not indicative of the final state. And this is kind of what he's getting at when he summarizes the parable of the lamp under the basket. In verse 24 and 25, he said, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, listen well, be good hearers to God's word. Because with the perception that you use, you will be given more. Spiritual truth is given to those who are seeking spiritual truth. Growth is given to those who are seeking growth. And if you're not, the words that you hear bounce off and it will still be the measure by which you are judged. Be careful what you hear. Apply what you hear. Seek the kingdom. Have a heart and a mind that is yearning for spiritual growth and truth. And as you listen to the word through that lens, more spiritual truth will be given to you. You will hardly ever find a spiritual giant who refuses to hear and learn. You will almost always find that person to be a cold, hard, arrogant person. Be careful how you hear because the kingdom of God is not promising you glory here and now. It is saying, maintain your equilibrium There will be good times. There will be bad. There will be periods where it doesn't seem like anything's happening. There may be times where what you're looking at seems unimpressive. But just you wait. The future is great. Let's pray.